All right. Well, hey, what better way to start a message on Father's Day than with some dad-isms, okay? So uh, we know dad jokes, you know, and the dad joke thing is all kinds of great dad jokes. If you want to hear one, just ask David Sloan. He's the master of the, the dad jokes. But these are dad-isms, and I wanted to see how universal these phrases were, how many of you have heard these phrases. I think they're pretty common, right? And they're all those phrases that, like, you say, I'll never say that. Like, my dad said that to me. I'm never going to say that. And then it's almost like a reflex. They just, these things just come out at the opportune times. And so I just want to see, just, just raise your hand if, if, and you can confess as a dad too, like, yep, I've said that one. Yep, I've said that one. All right, we'll see how many. Or if you just, you, your dad or somebody in your, your life that's kind of a father figure has said these things, okay, or done these things. All right, so here's some dad-isms. When answering the phone, yellow. How many? Come on, let's see it. How many is, know a dad or have a, that have answered the phone that way? Okay, that's totally a dad thing. Um, what about this? When you show them like a new version of something, like it's like a new kind of improved version, at least you're some kind of technology, um, well, they don't make them like they used to. How many of you heard that one? Yeah, they don't make, and it is, it is kind of true. I just, you know, that maybe is me being a dad, I don't know, but it is, it is kind of true. Um, when something gets broken at the house, how many have heard this? This is why we can't have nice things. This is it. This is why we can't have nice things. Yes, many of you have said it. Um, here's one for you. When somebody says, you know, when somebody says, I'm hungry, hi, hungry, I'm dad, right? How many of you have heard that one? Okay, that's a good one. Uh, what about this one? When someone is standing in front of the TV, hey, boy. You make a better door, you do a window. How many of you heard that one? All right, classic dad lines. Um, when there is fighting in the car, don't make me turn this car around, right? How many of you heard that one? Right, We're, we'll go. There's actually a funny family story where my grandpa actually did turn the car around one time. He's like, don't make, okay, I'm doing it. Turn around, no vacation that year. You know, I was like, kind of like a dad that puts his money where his mouth is, you know, um, what about this one? When there's a hidden fee revealed, that's how they get you. That's how they get you, you know. There's plenty of those dad sayings, and uh, some people were sharing some in the hallway with me, so maybe you can share some that your dad said um, or, you, you know, or that maybe you have started to say that you're even unaware of. And so those are some of the things that dads say. Today we kick off a series called Things Jesus Didn't Say. And uh, the list of things, actually, that Jesus didn't say are quite long, um, but we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus gets credit for saying, or things that we tend to believe, even though Jesus never actually said it. And uh, not only is Jesus the, the most quoted figure in history, he's, he's often one of the most misquoted, misinterpreted, and misunderstood um, figures in history. And so as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to figure out what are the things that Jesus actually said? And when Jesus said it, what did he actually mean by that? Because often what we do is we misquote him or we just take a little tidbit of what he said and we create this misconception of what Jesus actually meant or said. And so what we're doing over the course of the series is looking at some of these things that Maybe we have tended to kind of pick up along the way or things that have become common even in Christian culture that Jesus never actually put his stamp on, right? And so, um, and, and by the way, some of these things are things that 
when Jesus said them, we tend to soften what Jesus said because it's like more palatable for us. But Jesus said tough things. He said countercultural things. He said things that maybe don't feel so natural to us at times too. And then there's some things that we just flat out have given him credit for that he never actually said. And so as we start off today, we're, my, I actually changed the one um, that was supposed to be today. So sorry about that. But um, you guys, have been, we've been hearing a lot about love. We're going to keep talking about love today. And the, the topic that I was given was actually, and this comes from a series that's been done before, but the topic was that Jesus never said that you have to forgive them or you should forgive them. And I was like, I think most of us probably know that, but um, I, so I changed it a little bit, and, and, and I changed it to Jesus never said that love comes easy, because I, I do think that when it comes to love, that we sort of, we have kind of this, this idea, culturally speaking, that love should just come easy, right, that it should be natural, but what we see is that Jesus continued to raise the bar on what love looked like, and so whether or not we believe that Jesus said it, we tend to to believe this concept that love is just sort of this easy, natural thing that just sort of happens to us. But here's what Jesus had to say about love, and he, he corrects a misconception, actually, and you'll hear Jesus sometimes say things like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, and this was one of those moments. He said that you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the idea here is, in context, to be perfected in love is the way that God is perfected in love. And so if there's one thing that we should be getting right in figuring out how to live out in the proper and perfect way, it is in the way that we love. And so Jesus, you can see, creates sort of this very unnatural and challenging concept of love that takes us far beyond what any of us would do on our own power. I mean, when you talk about loving your neighbor, that's one thing, but you're telling me to also pray for my enemies, love my enemies, pray for those that persecute me? This is a whole different concept of love. And Jesus, as he often does, gives us a fuller picture of what love is really meant to be. Well, Google defines love this way, an intense feeling of deep affection. Another definition they have is a great interest and pleasure in something. Third definition, uh, feeling deep affection for someone. And then their last definition is like or enjoy very much. Sorry, Google, but I think love goes a lot further than that. But if you really think about those definitions, that's a pretty safe cultural definition of love, right? It's the one that we often buy into. And defined as such, you can see how that kind of love comes pretty naturally, right? And, and if you think about this idea of it's, it's just this deep feeling, right? Or it's this interest or pleasure in something. Or it's just an affection for someone. Or it's something that we like or enjoy very much. When it's reduced to those things, warm, fuzzy feelings, Google's version of love, it's something we are more involuntarily subject to, if you think about it. 
It's just sort of just something that happens to us, right? It's this natural emotional response. You probably aren't surprised, but God's definition is a bit different. It, it's a bit more difficult to live out. Love that comes from God goes far beyond and is something, more often than not, defies our natural feelings and responses. I mean, just take 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you've heard this at a wedding, and it's got all kinds of nice little sentiments in it, but think about what's actually being said here when it says, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, I don't know if you were, would kind of run your own life through that set of checkpoints, right? How many of you actually love like that? And the truth is, if we're being honest... So many of us, when it comes to patient, being patient, kind, humble, honorable, selfless, slow to anger, forgiving, honest, protective, trusting, hopeful, persistent. Most of us have a long way to go with those things. And if you're today coming in here like, nope, I've hit all those, I I got it all, then let me walk you back to where it says love does not boast, it is not proud, because you missed that one. And just keeping it real today, but we have a long way to go in living out a love like that. In fact, without being really possessed by the God of love, we will never naturally land with a love like that. But I do have a question. Imagine if more of us loved like that in our day. What would be the impact? I mean, just imagine, what if us, what if more of us loved like Jesus loved? Loved in the way that God intended for us to love. But as long as we misunderstand and misapply love, we will miss Jesus entirely. So this morning, we look at this story that's maybe a common story that you've heard before. As we try to get this fuller picture of what love looks like, we look at the personification of love, who is this person, Jesus And Jesus is the very personification of love. He is what love would be like when love put on human skin. In fact, he was. God is love, the Bible tells us. And Jesus is this perfect picture of love. And so if we're going to love, both experience the love that God has for us, but also extend that kind of love, we have to go back to the person of love and say, well, how did he love? And this is maybe a story that some of you have heard before. It comes from John 8, 1 through 11, but I just want to come before it with fresh eyes and allow ourselves to really just enter into this story. So I'm going to read it from John 8, 1 through 11. It says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teacher of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down. 
and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. So what do we learn about love? What do we see in the person of Jesus about what love does? The first thing that love does is it drops the stones. It drops the stones. And here the religious leaders are once again, and and if you know anything about the Pharisees of Jesus' day, you see that they were all about the rules. Really, their religion was boiled down to how well could you follow the rules of God, the law of Moses, and they would parade around demonstrating how righteous they were by how well they could follow the rules. And not only that, but they had this habit of sort of layering rules that didn't exist prior on top of the rules and interpreting the law in such a way that ultimately led more and more people to be condemned. And so um, it was very easy for them then to find this woman that was in, in caught in this sinful moment, pull her out, and in the middle of Jesus' message, right, he's teaching the people, drop this woman down before them because they had an issue with Jesus. And Jesus' understanding of things was very radical for them and his concept of love pushed against the grain of what they taught and what they stood for. And so they try to get Jesus into this moment where he would have to be pitted between the law of Moses and his concept of this radical kind of love. And so they feel like they've got this perfect plan, and they drop this woman before Jesus. And you can imagine when just in a moment of shame and just complete vulnerability, here she sits before the teacher, before Jesus, and just with this mob around her, all with stones in their hand, ready to condemn her. And as I paint that picture, I know it's hard for us to imagine that we could be the people on the outside of the circle with stones in our hand. But if we were really, really honest, we have this propensity to pick these things up. Forms of condemnation, whatever they might be, and hold them against people. It's natural for us, whether it's to make ourselves feel better or whatever it might be, we have this way or maybe we have been wounded in a significant way and we have this way, it's very natural for us to carry these stones around with us. And the longer that we live life, the more wounds that we experience, the more these things just continue to pile up on us. And as you can imagine, if you could visualize, the more that we carry these things the, the, the more difficulty it is for us to live our own life with freedom and walk in the way of love. And so this is the first thing. And Jesus, actually, in a merciful way, gives them the ability to, in this beautiful and brilliant way, force them to reckon with their own sin and be introspective. And I love that in this single line when he says, all right, tell you what, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And what Jesus allows them to do is realize that there's not a single one of us according to that standard that shouldn't be in the middle of this circle. And so tell you what, whichever one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. And it's important for us to come to that realization in our own relationship with Jesus that that God has 
the one person that could hold blame over us or, or hold grudges or, or hold unforgiveness against us doesn't. And we, in elementary discipleship, we lay some of these things out because if we're going to live as a disciple of Jesus and we're going to live as people of love, we can't carry these things around with us. It, it bogs us down. It keeps us from experiencing the life that God has for us. And by the way, this is not to minimize the things that maybe have happened to you, the ways that people have wounded you. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we're reducing those things down or we're not acknowledging those things. It's handing those things back over to God and saying, God, I trust you to be the ultimate judge. This is not for me. And so we hand over things like blame and bitterness, grudges, grievances, prejudice, prejudgment, self-righteousness, superiority. And we actually do a constant inventory of our life and say, man, how many of those things am I carrying right now? Because I can assure you of this. When you hold unforgiveness in your life, it ends up having an impact on you more than anything else. And so what are those things? And as you take an inventory of your life right now, as you walk in here, what are those stones that you need to set aside? And maybe it'll be a process, but what does it look like to, more, to live more freely in the way of love, to experience God's love more freely and extend God's love more freely? Because before we move even further with any of this, we have to be willing to lay down those stones. There was this, um, this, this thing that I saw that Jess had sent me, and it says, um, it says here, my dad was just introduced to Venmo, and it's the worst thing ever. He just requested $50 for 2001 T-ball registration fee. I was like, that's good, you know, and I just, don't tell my dad what Venmo is. I don't want him to use it because if I really had thought about the amount of debt that I've accumulated over the years, right, and there's, it's, it's a good thing that, um, that he has kept no record of wrongs on those things or he hasn't kept uh, my invoice because I'm wondering what that would look like. But what if our Heavenly Father sent us an invoice, right? I mean, what if, what if he requested a Venmo fee for all that we owed him, right? And if we were honest, it's that moment of realization that we have that reminds us that nobody's righteous, not one. Not one of us could pay the debt that we owe. And so first and foremost, we drop the stone, not because someone deserves it, appreciates it, or even acknowledges it. We drop the stone because God dropped the stone, plain and simple. We cancel the debt because he canceled our debt. We forgive because he has forgiven C.S. Lewis says to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. And I know that's easier said than done, but if we want to fully experience love and extend love, we've got to do that first thing. That's why the prayer that Jesus models for us says, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so love first drops the stones. Love also stoops down. And I love the postures of Jesus that we see here. We see a couple different postures as we read through this text. We see that at one point, we see that he stoops down, that he bends down, right? And I've always kind of wondered what's happening in this moment, you know, because they're clearly trying to trap him, but he takes this moment. But it's interesting to me because you really think about the posture that he takes on as he stoops down, as he bends down, as he gets down into the dirt. And I don't know that if this was his intention, but you can't overlook the fact that he takes on this posture of humility. While everybody else is sort of standing over this woman, Jesus stoops down into the dirt. He gets down at her level. He bends over. And then interestingly enough, he straightens back up, right, to defend her in, in a moment of, that, again, disperses the crowd. And when we aren't hearing stones around, we have the ability to, 
realize, again, that we are just the same as anyone else. We all belong in the middle of that circle, and that's a humbling kind of moment. It, it allows us to more easily stoop down and say, you know what, but by the blood of Jesus, I'm just the same as anybody else. And so we see these two postures, and we have a choice um, to take on a, these, these different postures. You see Jesus in the mob, right? The mob stands over her. Jesus stands beside her, behind her, and with her. He stoops down to be with her. The religious leaders were not wrong in principle, by the way, but they were dead wrong in posture. They were familiar with the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. They stood over her. Jesus stood with her. They aimed to shame her. Jesus sought to free her. They sought to harm her. Jesus fought to protect her. They wanted her to pay for her crime. Jesus would later absorb the penalty for her crime. So here's the question. Which do we represent in our relationship with others? Do we look more like Jesus or the mob? Which do we represent to a world of people starving for grace and compassion? Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Luke 6.36, Jesus tells us himself, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And I love this quote from Henry Nguyen. He says, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain, to touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend who cares. And love positions us and postures us in a way to be that kind of a friend. And so love stoops down. Love reaches out. If anybody had a right to remain neutral here, Jesus could have remained neutral. In fact, he could have been the opposite of neutral. He could have condemned this woman. But he also could have done nothing at all. He could have said, hey, guys, can I get back to my message, right? This is not my business. Don't interrupt my message again. But he intervened on her behalf. And what a powerful lesson he taught as he demonstrated what love looks like in real time. And by the way, it doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean we never make waves. If you, if you look at Jesus' life, you see that he was willing to make waves for the things that mattered. In, in our story, Jesus, he stood up to the establishment. He was the only one who would. He was the only one that would go against the crowd, right? And you've got to imagine there was probably many people in that mob that sort of just didn't want it. They didn't maybe feel great about it, but they just kind of, the mob sort of just sucks you in. And now, you know, when everybody's condemning, it's easy to jump on that condemnation bandwagon, right? And so everybody kind of gets sucked into this black hole of condemnation. But Jesus demonstrates something different by actively demonstrating compassion. We push against condemnation by demonstrating compassion. And in John 8, 9 through 10, again, we see that Jesus disperses the crowd. And then there's this moment where it's just Jesus and it's just this woman. And again, he straightens up again and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then he says those words that we would be wise to remember, neither do I condemn you. You see, Jesus 
was often a voice for the voiceless. He was a defender of the defenseless. He showed up and he acted. And you just have to imagine that as he spoke those words that dusted her off a little bit, that as he, 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 he met a need by speaking up for her, he met a need by advocating for her, he met a need by offering her what she didn't even realize she needed until that moment, and that was forgiveness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the pastor, or was a pastor during the Nazi rise of power, um, when countless people were being exploited um, in Germany, and so many people looked the other way, so many people didn't want to make waves, nobody wanted to step up, right, because that would put them in a precarious position, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was one who stepped up. He was a follower of Jesus that believed that something must be done, and he said this, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not, God, sorry, God will, will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And by the way, Bonhoeffer put his money where his mouth was. He died in Nazi captivity because of his vocal stances against Hitler and the Nazis. Though a German, he spoke out against his countrymen. He spoke out against evil, and he paid with his life. He lived out the kind of love we are all called to live, the love expressed through Christ, the kind of love that takes action, the kind of love that reaches out to someone in need. 1 John 2, 1 through 7 says, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walks. James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, one of the lines you maybe heard before is that love takes us just as we are, but it doesn't leave us as we are, that God doesn't just leave us as we are. Love points the way forward. And the next line that we hear Jesus say is, just And you can imagine just this compassion, but also this desire for this woman to not go back to what she came from, but to go experience the life that she was actually made for. He didn't just give this, again, neutral stance of, hey, good luck out there, you know, hope everything goes well. He says, now go and leave your life of sin. Don't go back to that. And as we see here, as we, that love, or again, does not delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth. Why? Because it's truth that sets people free. The truth was that this woman was living in sin, and the truth was that Jesus wanted what was best for her, and what was best was not to go back to this other life. Jesus does not withhold the truth, because that would be unloving. However, think about this. He had already stooped down with her. He had already stood up for her. He had already reached out to to her, offering mercy and forgiveness. I think about um, when, when Aiden was a little bit younger. He was probably maybe three, three or four, and we were walking out in Loveland along this beach, um, and there was a bunch of people just fishing, playing in the creek or whatever. And, um, you know, it kind of was just like quiet out there, and, um, you know, everybody's just kind of hanging out, minding their own business. And this guy comes down the beach, and he just like lights up a cigarette. He's kind of walking by, takes a draw, and he's kind of probably from me to like the booth. And um, Aiden like notices this dude right away. He like looks over, and before I could even realize what was happening, I hear this voice. It's this little, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old voice. He goes, "Hey, you shouldn't smoke." He's like yells it out. This guy's like so taken aback. Like, 
who said that? Like, it was loud. Like, he was not, it was not a whisper. And it was this moment where you're like, as a parent, you're like, I want to crawl back into, like, I want to crawl into a hole somewhere. This guy was, like, mad about it, you know? And I'm like, great, I'm going to have to fight somebody in Loveland, you know? And, uh, you know, and I wasn't even picking the fight, right? And, uh, you know, so we had this conversation after the fact, like, hey, buddy, you, you are right. He shouldn't smoke. It's not good for him. Um, but I got a couple issues with your presentation. You know, I was like, let's... <laughs> Don't do that again, you know, and uh, it's not your job to correct adults, and, uh, and, but, but there's this interesting thing that a lot of us do, and I think sometimes in the church we're guilty of, and again, I believe we should speak the truth. Withholding truth is an unloving thing to do, but often we start there, and remember Jesus' pattern. He stooped down. He stood up for her. He reached out to her, and I think that if we would do it in that order, we have a much better opportunity of speaking truth and life into someone, right? When we take the journey with them, when we actually, through relationship, earn the equity that, it, that allows us to speak into people's lives and to send them in a better way. And so I just encourage us to continue to do that. One of the things God's been challenging me as we wrap up here with lately is um, we had met with some leaders here recently. and. You know, I was kind of thinking about, like, as a leader, like, the things that I really desire uh, for the people that God has blessed me with, privileged me with the opportunity to, to lead. And as a leader, it can be difficult because you want what's best for people, right? Um, but it can be muddied up sometimes because in any relationship, I mean, think about the people around you. You know, there are things that, if, if all of us are honest, in relationships, we want something from that relationship. Like we, we, if we're really honest, like we can be muddied up because we all, you know, we have these selfish motives and we want something out of the relationship. And so I just kind of felt this challenge of, you know, that's not the question we should be asking is like, you know, what do I want from this person? And then there's another question that's often asked. And we say, we kind of ask this question of like, well, what do I expect of this person, right? And by the way, expectations are great. But um, I think sometimes we build our relationships upon like this person delivering on all of these things and this expectation we have of someone. And so I just felt like, and I was, this was all happening while I'm riding around on the mower. This is when the Lord speaks to me, apparently, because maybe it's the only quiet time I have. Um, but I'm sitting there and then he's pushing, he's nudging me a little further and you know, I'm like, no, that's not the question I should be asking. I should be asking, what do I want for this person? And then it was like the Holy Spirit just pushed me a little bit more, like, you're getting closer, and it just kind of kicked me over, you know, the edge a little bit further, and then the question struck me. No, that's not the question I should be asking. What does God want for this person? And I think that that, 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 that postures it a little bit differently. Again, not so that we don't have expectations, because I want to expect that people succeed. I want to have the best, but... This is a, a more humble posture. So I've been trying to do that. It's just like pray this prayer. I've been encouraging some of our leaders that we've been meeting with to pray this prayer. When it comes to your relationships, what if you started to really ask that question? God, what do you want for this person? And then and make every effort to come alongside that. Speak life and truth into people in a way that helps them to step into the things that God wants for them. And so I want to encourage us to do that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one more song as we close out today. God, thank you for today. Thank you for just the way that you love us, God, the way that you demonstrate for us this fuller picture of what love is, God. And I, I'm grateful, God, that your version of love is not like the Google version of love because if it was just this intense feeling or emotion, God, I have a feeling, God, I, in fact, I know, God, that, that I don't deserve loving affection from you, God because of who I am, God, but you have given me what I don't deserve, God. 
And so I thank you, God, that you love us like that, God, that you and your love defies just this normal, everyday kind of love. Help us to walk in that love and help us to love others the way that you love us, we pray in Jesus' name.